Hello, comrades and friends. This is your Highlands Bunker podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, and in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Carl is producing remotely, uh, and we own all the means of production. Our guests today are News Journal and Delaware Online journalist Jeannie Kwan. Hello, Jeannie. Hi. <laughs> also, uh, photojournalist, visual artist, producer, social commentator, Liverpool Football Club pro- propagandist, rock on tour. Renaissance man, uh, Jerry Habreken. Jerry, how are you? I'm pretty good. It's almost Friday. That's 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 the kind of commentary that we want. I do have a funny story. I have a couple funny stories, uh, Jerry, but I'll I'll save them for later. Okay. Uh, Jeannie and Jerry reported a story in late August titled. How a Wilmington affordable housing project created to serve the city's lowest earners was lost. Um, I know that reporters and photographers don't write the headlines, so I won't waste time on a long critique other than to say that headline is total dog shit. Um, my headline would be more like Mayor Przicki and Deputy Rago hate poor people. Uh, some might find this commentary outlandish uh, or incendiary, uh, but after reviewing this reporting... Um, I guess you can sort of tell me. Uh, Jeannie, so uh, late 1990s, there's a deal cut, um, as many were, to build affordable housing, um, and uh, Quaker Village was born. So um, you want to give us the sort of the background on the building and sort of the first years that it was um, sort of established? Sure. Well, first of all, um, I did have some hand in writing that headline and i just want to say that i do not endorse robs um it's pretty complicated but basically um this housing project is pretty recognizable it's at fourth and tattnall fourth and west in wilmington and it was built through the low-income housing tax credits program which is a nationwide program um, in which developers get awarded tax credits by the state housing authority in each state. And it gives you um, the ability to sell tax credits to investors to fund subsidized housing, because obviously with affordable housing, you can't charge market rate rent. So in order to make the deal work and make this profitable for you, you're going to need somebody to make up a certain amount of the subs uh, to subsidize a certain amount of their construction costs. Um, So this comes in the form of tax credits. And this is generally one of those programs that's kind of has like traditional bipartisan support. It uses a government program to incentivize private development. And um, it's one of the more, I guess, people, commentators in the housing world would say that it's kind of generated. It's one of the more prolific generators um, of low income housing in the country. Um, it's, you know, really costly for the government itself to build low-income units. Um, this kind of, as they say, leverages the power of the private market. Um, so yeah, in Delaware, it's one of the only ways that you can sort of spur affordable housing development every year. The way that um, developers compete for credits through the Delaware State Housing Authority, it's pretty competitive every year. 
and there's only really enough tax credits each year for like one major project. Um, actually, I'm, I may be misspeaking on that, but it is definitely a competitive process. Um, and sometimes projects have to like wait till the next year if one major project got favored one year or something like that. Um, so yeah, back then this project was one of the ones that was afforded the credits um, and it comes with a really long and strict income restriction on the units as all affordable housing units have. Um, and you basically cannot get out of these restrictions because it's tied to the tax code. Um, so that's the long and short of it. It was about 45 units um, near downtown Wilmington. It was advertised as being close to downtown and having kind of like a classier look than, I don't know what they're comparing it to, but that's kind of the, uh, yeah. that, that's the atmosphere that this was. Being. Yeah. You, um, the, the one paragraph that I think, um, not only sums it up, but also gives a little tidbit of information about where this could possibly go. At least for me, it did. Uh, it says in the case of Quaker village, one and a half million dollars in tax credits over 10 years were paid, uh, as part of the construction in 1999. Um, the city under Jim Sills, uh, lent the project a million dollars and issued $2.7 million in tax exempt bonds. The bond debt was later assumed by the Delaware community investment corporation. Well, that sounds nice. It's like community investment. We're investing in our community. The corporation kind of gives the game away because now that particular ent entity is a scenario and it's just a, uh, you know, I guess it's a, you know, an investment firm that just holds the, holds the investment, you know, some capital firm, uh, which I thought was pretty funny because I like the way that they name it, but what it really comes out to be is it's just the bank. So, over the years, we noticed that this property uh, starts to uh, rack up code violations. Uh, there's a lot of there's unpaid debts that start to rack up as early as I guess about 2008. Maybe um, we start to see code violations, and then the debts really ramp up around 2010. What did the financial situation look like um, as it started to sort of? spiral towards bankruptcy? Well, um, first of all, I want to say that this is a pretty hard story to report, mainly because a lot of the details I'm still not sure about. Um, you know, this all, I reported this out after everything was sort of said and done and it had all already happened. Um, and one of the main players involved, um, the um, one of the guys in charge of the construction company that was um, you know, the owner of the building, he, uh, passed away, like while this was all happening. And so, you know, I wasn't able to obviously get his side of it. And then the new, the other old owner of the building, um, he said that he wasn't personally as involved at the time. So it, it was, so, so we don't know all the details, but as far as I can tell, um, they, the lender, um, which is now Scenario, started noticing that they just weren't, there was a lot of, debts racking up, um, including things like unpaid property taxes, water bills, things like that. And they said that that was really a red flag for them because if you're not paying your water bills and your property taxes, you know, there's probably a lot of other stuff that you're not paying um, is how they put it. So that's sort of, they started noticing that some things were going wrong and they were worried that they would not be able to pay off the initial loan. Um, and then another thing that's looming is that a lot of these projects 
Um, at first, they have like a 15-year compliance for keeping the units affordable. Um, usually, at the towards the end of that, they you know buildings go through some wear and tear. You know they've had multiple sets of tenants go through, and so you're kind of seeing a need for capital improvements and that is also emerging in this building. Um, you can see later through licenses and inspection reports that it was definitely in bad shape and the tenants had been complaining a lot about different conditions in the units and stuff. So that was also gonna be something that they would need money for. Um, so this is all kind of coming to a head as the 15 year initial affordability compliance period is you know, winding to its winding to its deadline. Yeah. So I think uh, Petroselli is the gentleman who uh, I guess the one of the construction firm owners or part owner who or operator uh, who passed away. And just uh, to make this a great, you know, sort of Delaware Wilmington story, um, Trippy Congo's father uh, is now or was, I should say, excuse me, the sole owner. So uh his his father was partners i guess uh with petroselli um but as you say um the story now is you know uh the 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 guy who passed away uh was really the operator and so um there, i i guess mr congo doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot to say about it and it just he just wound up losing the property uh i do want to uh, talk about the company that bought the that bought the uh, that bought the property. Um, but before I do that, I just want to I just want to ask what you're feeling about this idea. And you mentioned it before. The whole scheme, sort of, uh, for decades, has been that you know affordable housing needs some sort of stimulus or some sort of break because it it wouldn't. It, it wouldn't work otherwise from a profit motive, right? I think that that's a theme that runs all the way through this story. Um, I think this is what the new company has said, is that, you know, they need to find ways to wriggle out of uh, any kind of rent control because it's just not profitable sort of otherwise. Um, yeah, what was your feeling talking to the new owners? It's a New York firm whose name I can't find, but um, yeah, what was your what what did you what did you make of those uh, those folks? Well, he did say to me that he is not trying to wriggle out of any legal requirements that he maintain the affordability of the units. So there is um, a condition. So you know, the story as the story goes. Um, building eventually goes into foreclosure, it, which is like one of only two ways that you can possibly get out of um, low-income housing tax credit requirements on your building, on your um, unit's affordable rents, and foreclosures is one of the only ways. So that happens, but there's still a three-year, you know, grace period for the current tenants um, to be under affordable rents. So he has made it clear, you know, I'm not trying to get out of those. And I asked him, well, are you planning on raising it to market rent after those three years? And he says, you know, eventually that seems likely, but he wants to focus first on redoing all the units, making them, renovating them, making them nicer, um, and bringing them up to, as he calls it, the um, potential of the area that it's in. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I did notice was that there was another sort of legal 
uh, legal option that if there was proof of sort of slow tenant payments or slow rent payments, and I don't know what the criteria would be, but there was also some, um, you know, some pressure that could be applied to raise the rents in that case. Um, do you remember anything about that? I'm looking for the uh, for the quote or the or the little piece in here about it. Well, it's because the tenants were part of this program that they, in addition to those three year protections, um, they also have this additional protection that they can't be evicted or have the rent raised on them without what is known in the law as good cause. And um, he, they did file. Um, well, they didn't file formal evictions. They did send their several of their tenants letters asking them to leave saying that they were going to end those leases or not renew them because the good cause was that they were repeatedly late on rent. This is something that the tenants that Jerry and I talked to deny. Um, They said that they've gone through a lot of turmoil over the past couple of years as the property went into receivership and got new management companies, like multiple new management companies in a couple of years. They said that they've been diligently paying their rent the whole time. Um, You know, that's, Obviously, that's just a disputed matter between the two parties. Um, But then the owner also did say, you know, he was trying to remove tenants who were bad tenants, taking advantage of the property, maybe contributing to some of the drug and loitering crimes in the area. Um, But the tenants that we talked to, the good cause wasn't that. It said that they were repeatedly laid on rent. Um, And so that's that's the matter that I guess is up for dispute. Um, What else are we talking about? We also, oh yeah, you mentioned this idea that there needs to be a subsidy in order for it to be profitable. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's just the case for all affordable housing development. Um, But, but one thing that I think is interesting about this story and just um, something that I've been learning as I've been reporting on affordable housing in the city in general is just that, you know, with the right combination of subsidies and, uh, you know, city grants or deals here and there, like affordable housing tends to be a pretty profitable venture for a lot of developers and a lot of landlords. And I mean, um, you know, it's a big market. There's a lot of people who need it. And if they run it the right way, like it, it can work out. And this project is one of the few ones under this particular program, the tax credit program that have failed. Um, most of them don't end this way. Um, Now, I tried through my reporting to kind of figure out whose quote unquote fault that was. And I don't think I really came to a particular conclusion, but it definitely was a pretty messy and complicated situation in this case. Um, And also just a a rare and unique one. Like it's not supposed to end this way. Yeah. I mean, I think you were that was clear that, you know, a lot of, them, uh, you know, or the lion's share are successful in some fashion or at least don't end um, sort of, you know, like like this one. Uh, has, um, but I agree with you. I mean, it's very hard to make a conclu- make a conclusion because there's no way to really interrogate, like what what the f- why the building fell into that financial situation because, you know, Mr. Congo sort of the shrugs and the other guy's not here, so everybody can just kind of walk away from it. And there's no like, was it was it mismanagement? Um, was it other reasons? I mean, it's yeah, I guess it's it's hard to suss out now. Um, I guess. Moving forward from that, um, you know, the one thing that I'm always frustrated with and, you know, I think Jerry captures it so uh, poignantly to me uh, is just the, you know, the tenants that are being not only just the tenants that are being uh, impacted, but, you know, like 
what their life is like, what it looks like, what they look like, what the building looks like. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. Did you, I noticed just today looking back and I hadn't noticed that I've read it like three times, Jerry, did you shoot the video too? I didn't realize there was video. Yeah, I did the video. Yeah. I kind of did it over, um, two sessions of going over to the apartments. Yeah, because there's a shot of somebody, um, I guess, clearing out and walking down a set of stairs that then there's like a still photograph of just the, the that that flight of stairs, which was which was pretty cool, I thought. Um, yeah, I mean, what's your what's your thought process when you go in and, and you meet such a diverse group of people to kind of be able to show, you know, in, you know, I don't know how many uh, photos you ran, maybe six with this big piece. Uh, and some of them are like sort of portrait style where they're sort of set up and, and uh, kind of moving in that way really captures a, a person or, or in this case, a, f a family and then another couple. Um, yeah. Do you have a, do you ever go in there with sort of a, a general idea of or you just sort of see the lay of the land? What's your what's your process? Um, trying to put photos in your head before you go is generally a bad idea because you kind of put this grandiose Pulitzer photo in your head and you're like, well, that's, that's what I want. I'm going to be stubborn until I get it. Um, so it's best to just kind of go in super open-minded. Um, and with this, it's a little bit of luck and a little bit of patience. Um, I definitely always try to do the interviews first because then you can like learn about little details. Oh, I need to go photograph this mold they talked about or this faucet that's not working. Um, so that can help give you ideas for your video or the photo. Um, and you get a kind of a vibe of the person and, you know, are they real sullen and down or are they, you know, despite everything going on, very proud. And that will affect like how I shoot the portrait and things like that, how I pose them. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of jump in with like a blank canvas and then kind of let them um, form what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's cool. I don't. You don't, uh, we've talked about this offline uh, before, but you don't see, I don't think, um, a lot of like portrait or, or posed photos of, of people with um, news stories, but the most uh, poignant ones are the ones that are, st that are structured to ones you do. We've talked about some of them before. Um, it's interesting. Is that something that um, like a lot of just sort of local photo photojournalists do? I don't notice it that much, but maybe it's just me. You mean as far as as just far as written stories? I'll give you an example. Uh, we've talked about this one before because I found it particularly. Uh, I've just thought it was a particularly good photograph of the woman who is the uh, activist in Southbridge, uh, and you went to a meeting about <clears throat> uh, them redeveloping a, sort of a, a brownfield or some sort of um, dirty, you know, chemical device, and, and putting some more uh, heavy industry there. And so there was a meeting about this issue. You know, this sort of like land use in a low income neighborhood, um, environmental aspects or whatever. But the pic one of the photos that ran with the three was a portrait of that woman sort of standing in front of that field um, that was obviously posed and done like more of a portrait. And I thought, oh, you don't I, I don't see a lot of people doing that. And I find it fascinating that that's something that you incorporate into it. Um, but but maybe I'm just not paying close enough attention. I mean, I always think like the environment is way better than doing like a really tight headshot or really kind of a studio type portrait. I don't know. I always like to keep my portraits kind of no nonsense. 
put you in your environment. You can move around the photo and, and, and gather details. You can see her apartment. You can see like in this portrait of Karima and her kids on the couch. Yeah. I don't know. You just, it looks like a lived in home. There's a shoe on the floor. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. You, you see that just things like a basic shoe on the floor, a pillow. And you're like, Oh yeah, my, my apartment's like that. Oh, these are real people. And, and I don't think you get that. If it's this like really set up clean looking picture all the time. Um, no, I, I, I certainly agree. It definitely adds, uh, add some weight to the stuff I read. So I just think it's cool. I know, uh, that's when you, when you're like, I don't know what I have to add to this. I was like, you add, that's what you're out there doing. You're adding. It's Actually, great. I definitely want, since we're just talking about local journalism and plugging local journalism, um, which is my favorite hobby. Um, I, Jerry puts in so much time and work, um, spending time with the subjects of his photographs before, you know, he comes up with the idea for the portrait. Like he went back, we went and interviewed the tenants uh, once and I had talked to them over the phone on my own where, you know, it's kind of easy for me to do my initial interviews over the phone and just kind of get a sense of what the situation is before I decide, like, do you want to take the time to meet up? Do you want to be photographed? Um, so Jerry and I went once and it was my second time talking to them. And then he went another time um, and he specifically told me not to go because I would add like an extra intrusive presence to the situation. Like there's so much time that photojournalists spend um just like feeling out a place feeling out like a person's mood and stuff before they really even set up the shot um so i think that's really impressive i like that you were going to ruin this you were, you were going to ruin the scene bad vibes bad vibes i bring bad vibes everywhere so it's fine <laughs> i understand um so before we get to the to the part of the story where the city sort of steps back into it um i do want to read a, a couple of quotes from uh the representative of the of the company who has purchased this uh, this property um, quote we go into areas that are questionable on the border on the cusp and try to turn it toward the right rather than toward the left it's just a matter of cleaning up the property and bringing it up to its potential now and then he goes on to talk about drugs and loitering and you know, I suppose that, you know, that neighborhood is, you know, there's it's a higher crime uh, neighborhood. Uh, it's certainly, you know, more poor people in that, you know, in certain neighborhoods get all of that. Um, I thought that was an odd. I thought these were some odd word choices about sort of questionable. And in, rather than toward the right and not towards the wrong, he said towards the left. I thought that was interesting or on the cusp. That's on the cusp of what? That's very interesting to me. I mean, this sort of guy, I know you chose a couple of these quotes, so you must have found them quite interesting as well. What what sort of sense did you get from this from this dude? Well, he had also referred to another um, redeveloped property that his group did in um, near the Newcastle area. And, you know, I think this is sort of a common parlance in the development world or appears to be as I'm learning as I as I cover these issues um about like choosing areas where they where people feel like the real estate market might be turned towards the stronger like i think what he was referring to was that this is an area that's in between downtown and less than a city um it's in between an area that has seen a lot of real estate activity and has seen a lot of 
redevelopment um, and you know lower crime and and then an area that hasn't seen as much um, and that is sort of you know how redevelopment works is you start somewhere where the market is strong and you sort of continue to move outward um, um, so I, I that is my sense of what they meant and that's my sense of what overall like people in the development world mean when they think of the potential of, of the market that they're working in yeah and so while it's um while it's not necessarily profitable to house poor and working class people people do make money at it so that's very interesting like let's see let's see where this goes so before the property went into uh, I guess foreclosure technically um there was some attempts with the city to um, waive the water bill, which was, I think, around a million dollars um, to get uh, additional, I guess, financing support. Um, there was some previous, uh, I guess, steps towards uh, Dennis Williams when he was the mayor that maybe something could be worked out. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Mike Brzezicki is... is, is uh, is the mayor four years ago and nothing sort of comes of it. There's a few meetings that are documented. Um, they did discuss maybe waiving some penalties, but all these potential buyers or deals um, just fell apart. I find it interesting that the message from the mayor through Rago is sort of like, we can't, we can't help a for profit. Um, and we can't help somebody whose son is on the city council. It looks bad. And that sentence by itself sort of makes sense, but you do juxtapose it against uh, a bailout that happened for a, quote, nonprofit that was very well connected to Buccini Pollen Group and to the city. Um, but the only difference being, and I, and I think you raised this with the mayor, um, that it was a quote-unquote not-for-profit setup. Um, can you talk a little bit about that that aspect of it? Um, well, I had been reporting on the city stepping into the collapse of the Wilmington Housing Partnership for quite some time, and to me there were just some similarities in that it is also an affordable housing uh, effort. And you know, that when they ran out of money due to what the city auditor found was a series of, you know, missteps and poor financial management, the city said, we'll step in, we'll spend money to pay off your debts and finish your projects um, because we think it's important to preserve your mission of building affordable housing projects in the city. Um, very, very, very different kind of organization. I should be clear. Um, it was, you know, it's a, it's a nonprofit, it's a public private partnership. And it's, um, they also, they build it, they built homes for home ownership um, and not, it wasn't like a rental property or anything like that. Um, and yeah, it, it's like, a, it's a very different kind of organization, I should be clear. But, um, you know, they did say that they thought that the mission was important. And so I just, I thought that that was worth posing um, to city officials. Um, you know, did you think in this situation that the mission was similarly important? Um, and they, and they, you know, they said, which 
I don't think this is invalid. They said that it was, it's a very, very different situation and not worth comparing. Um, but I thought that it was one of the closest instances of um, the city stepping into an affordable housing situation that we had for comparison. So I thought it was at least worth pointing out. Um, and whether or not you think it's valid, his reasons for not stepping in, in this for-profit situation as opposed to the other one, well, I think I know what you think, Rob, but um, I think that's up for interpretation. I just thought it was worth asking. No, I definitely think it's worth asking. And, and as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I think it's very easy to, to point at the differences, but it's also, it's, it's, it's certainly, I, I feel like their defensive, their immediate sort of defensive action against that was the, is the tell. I mean, I don't know if you, that's sort of how your reporting came across was they immediately were like, well, that's not the same thing. Um, but you know, a public private partnership is basically private. Um, you know, everything we've sunk into, and I say, we just, you know, public, uh, public resources that have been sunk into this property in Quaker village. Well, that was public. Do we get any, what, what, you know, that's, so we already have skin in the game. Um, the city did, you made that very clear. That was one of the reasons that the, the negotiations were happening with the city rather than the state, because the city was the one who was uh, sort of involved from the beginning and had, had an interest in it. So the idea that that's not a partnership, that's for profit. So I guess we're not a partner, but we are a partner when Buccini Pollen Group is involved and they get bailed out. Now, as you said, that project did seem to be more uh, for home ownership rather than rental. Okay. Um, I think both properties would very easily be described as close to downtown. Um, you know, I guess it's outside of the, I'm sure that somewhere on some wall, like behind Carl's wall, there's a map with a border around it. Uh, of where Buccini Pollen will operate and where they won't. So somehow this fell outside the red line, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very, while there are differences and you make them very clear and there's an argument to be made, I think it's, it's, it's very transparent. Um, you know, when things, one thing we know about uh, the mayor is uh, he can do real estate deals. And so to pretend like you can't just meant that you didn't want to. So, you know, why not? That's how I sort of approach those things. I think you kind of did too, which was cool. Um, but yeah, take a stake in it if you don't want. Like, you know, we, we dump money into one thing we call one thing with some people. We dump money into another thing we call something else. And then we pretend that we have a stake in one or the other just based on a political decision. Um, that's actually just an on paper way to sort of manage around these red lines and these restrictions. Um, you know, it's a little bit disheartening and I know, uh, I guess some of the tenants have already have, have already left because their rent was, their, their leases were not going to be renewed because of the history of slow payment. So uh, I guess some of the tenants have already been, have already been put out. Uh, yeah, some of them had left. Um, Karima told us that they had sort of trickled out throughout the year or even during the foreclosure process as they were kind of worried about what was to come. Um, but then um, as the last that we heard from Karima, she herself has not been able to find um, a unit that was 
you know, the right price and size for her family. Um, the other element of this is that this is all happening during the coronavirus crisis, which is not over, as it turns out. Um, and uh, yeah, it makes the rental market really difficult for especially low income renters. Yeah, and that made, I think that made the, um, you know, the photographs um, hit even, even, even harder because, you know, these are people not just being affected by this story, um, you know, but it's upending their, their life uh, in a real material way. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things you need is some sort of shelter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of look at this overall, like, you know, it's just, it's commodification of one of the things that probably can't be commodified. I mean, that's how we started the conversation. It's like, okay, well, you can't make a profit at helping poor people, okay? I mean, it's sort of like the, the conversation we have with healthcare. Well, you know, maybe, you know, what kind, of, what kind of profit margins do you want to put in there for people's, like, cancer treatment or life or death or coronavirus treatment or whatever, what have you? I think, you know, that's the, that's the commentary from the reporting that, that I took away from it. And, you know, I know you're not going to, not going to make any comment about that or I won't I'll tell you what I won't um I won't mention anybody else by name just so you don't you don't feel uncomfortable you really did help write that headline though garbage terrible I do have to come up I do have to have some input in them occasionally well that's I mean at least you get some input and I do like the uh, and I, I think I, it's I, accurate I mean it I, was lost I mean a lot of things are accurate the stuff the stuff John Rago said is technically accurate I'm just I'm talking about the the spirit of it What's even worse is she's already written the headlines I make a video then I have to make a different headline for the video and I don't have this writing background and it's it's terrible I feel like let's, that let's, makes it easier for you. Video headlines are awful. All my video headlines Oof. are terrible for every story. Okay. Here's the video headline for this story. Affordable housing residents forced to look for new home during a pandemic. I like that, actually. Yeah, I, I, again, I think that it's accurate and tells you what you need to know. Well, that's true. Okay, fine. I'm always arguing with you goddamn journos about this. Um, so... One last thing on a on a housing topic because it's it's topical and I want to get your your take on it because you're the you're the go to now. Um, tomorrow, uh, I guess Blight Bill 4.0 or 3.7 or you know whatever it is is gonna, probably going to pass the uh, city council. Uh, our buddy it's actually Bud. Next week. It's next oh, week. Or I don't next know when you're releasing this. It's oh, on the 15th. Okay. I uh, whenever I, this probably maybe in two weeks. So. I guess it won't really. It's nothing we say here is going to matter one way or the other. I don't think. Um, I do appreciate our bud, bud, buddy to bud, doing his lame duck is, is doing somebody a favor. Way to go, bud! Um, pushing through this this um, this re recalculated, redone um, blight bill. Um, so, I I did speak to uh, a housing activist of some esteem uh, today who isn't necessarily, um, I don't want to say optimistic, not really pessimistic about it because the changes that were made um, seem to be in line with, with some of the things that the activists were worried about. Um, maybe we're just uh, sort of, you know it's going to happen, so you just resign yourself to your fate. Um, but yeah, where does that stand? What, what changes were made? And can you give us a, just a, a little background on 
on what's happening with that. Sure. The uh, perennial blight bill is back on the city council floor next week, October 15th. Um, what it does is convert the building code enforcement system from a criminal to a civil process. Super exciting, I know. Um, but basically, the city believes that it takes too long right now to hold property owners, specifically what they say is absentee and um, shitty landlords to account for the condition of their properties. Um, right now, you have to go to court. It's like a misdemeanor charge. Um, and then you can appeal and, you know, court takes a long time and stuff. And in all of that time, the violation doesn't get corrected. Um, so they're trying to change it to a civil process in which you just automatically get a fine. And then if you don't fix it in a week, you get another fine. And they're thinking that if we hit them in the pocketbook, it will uh, make them comply. And they're saying that this is an effort to really help low-income tenants who are being exploited by landlords, but also get some of the vacant properties that are in bad condition to uh, be in slightly better shape. Um, this went through numerous iterations over the past like two, three years. At first, this applied to all property owners. And there was this big concern that this should not apply to owners of their own homes who might not be able to afford home repairs. Um, so those people are out of the equation altogether. They just are under the old system, which is the go to court system. Yeah, that was my understanding that one of the big um, one of the big changes was to remove property owners in total just from the from the changes so that the and I think that was the general the general um, critique from, you know, the activist left was that it was really open to discretion on who could be targeted. And so any sort of criteria that uh, helped, you know, certain cohorts of people was going to be helpful um, because it was sort of open. And, and that was the one thing that was mentioned to me today is that homeowner owner occupied homeowners uh, are going to are, are going to be taken out of the more strict, uh, you know, uh, open sort of enforcement and, and, and the old policy will continue for them. Yeah, they actually made that change like two years ago at this point. Um, it was right before I got to Wilmington. Um, and then since then, it's still been through a few other concessions. But that was the biggest change, and it was made two years ago. But I definitely get the sense that proponents of the bill have not, since that change, uh, regained a lot of people's trust over it. So it's been controversial still, even though the major... Um, the major controversy is sort of removed. Um, I think that some of the critiques of the bill, at least last summer, were kind of, well, one, a lot of landlords were opposed because um, it requires setting up like a whole vacant property registration system for which they would have had to pay a lot more in business registration fees. And that has ticked off a lot of landlords. But then in addition to that, some housing advocates thought that it wasn't focused as much on like the worst of the worst properties and it was kind of blanket for everyone. And so that it wouldn't, um, their argument was that it wasn't targeted enough to really achieve compliance for the worst of the worst, um, which, you know, that gets a little in the weeds. Um, not that it isn't important, um, but, but yeah, there, there's been a, a few more concessions. Actually, the fees are also removed now. So um, it's it's a very stripped down version that's going before council next week. Yeah, 
Um, and I think I, I, I agree with that. I, I think it, it did get in the weeds because both sides were sort of throwing out these hypothetical situations or anecdotal situations or their individual narrow situation uh, because it was written in a way to, to make it selective. Then everybody was like, "Well, are you gonna are you gonna select me? <laughs> like, how's it gonna like? Is it gonna is it gonna be my burden or is it gonna be more fair?" And so everybody kind of got into that mode where you know everybody had their story. Where now I, I think it's a little it's a little tighter. Um, the only other the only other changes that I'm aware of, and I don't know when these changes were made, was that uh, two things. Number one is there's a mechanism by which um, a, there's a review process now that there wasn't there before. Now, I don't know whether that review process through, I think it's a city council committee, I don't know whether, I mean, I don't, do I have a lot of faith that the city council actually even just operates properly? Not really, but we'll see, at least it's written down. Uh, and the other thing is that I believe that the change needs to be fully reviewed by the council in three years, so it has a pretty, uh, a, a pretty abrupt sundowning provision that will have to be re-reviewed. That's the only other things I can think of. So now is a time where I'm going to I'm going to um, kind of give a little secret away because we talk about this every once in a while. And I want to kind of tease it because one of these days we're going to release the lost tapes, the lost Jerry tapes. Because, look, he's rolling his eyes. He knows this is going to happen. This is so, what I'm here for. Yes. So. uh not this past summer, but the summer before was a big summer for English cricket. And Jerry was like, I don't understand it. Jerry's, um, Jerry's, it's not really a hatred of baseball. It's an understanding that, that baseball is the, is the opposite of good. It's the black hat chain, like the white hat and the black hat. It is the, it's the, it's the thing that's going to draw you down into the pit. And, and I think he was intrigued by cricket being another bat and ball game, but didn't look like the devil's game to him. So, uh, he wanted to talk about cricket. So we turned the microphones on, and I have to start the way I always start, just talking about Jerry's life, where he's from, what it was like, and Jerry starts spinning yarns about his, about his life. Incredible. Incredible stories. That's why I called him a rock on tour earlier. So that goes on for about 30, 40 minutes, and then we realize, oh shit, we got to got to talk about the cricket. So then I explain the rules of cricket for like an hour, and Jerry asks questions, and we go back and forth. And then after that, Jerry closes this discussion that's like two and a half hours long with this story of of I, I don't want to give too much of it away, but uh, I'll just say that how do I, how can I tease it? Him and his friend, if I remember this correctly, Jerry and his best friend dated in high school twin sisters but the sisters were also the the daughters of the local pentecostal minister which is incredible uh now did i get the did i at least get jerry the 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 uh the details those details correct yeah that's on point yeah so that so i mean for those of you who do know jerry um you will find this even funnier. And one of these days, when we have time, we're going to pull this out of the archives, like like the band's basement tapes uh, that were, you know, like Dylan on there and everything. And we're going to bring these out. And this is going to people are going to be just they're going to be like, this is Jerry. This is Jerry. It's going to be incredible. It was good, dude. It is a good story. Yeah, I. It's 
It's a good breakup story. See, you're giving it away. Well, I guess obviously you know you broke up. And you could be. What if you were married to her right now? She's right over here. <laughs> that would be the greatest end of the story. She just pops up behind me. Um, yes. No, no. I started out saying this is a breakup story, so that, that's not a. That's, that's not. Yeah, a that's not. That's, that's not a big. There's no spoiler alert or anything that's needed there. Jerry is also our. Uh, as people know, I'm I'm a fan of uh, the glorious Tottenham Hotspur, uh, the best. Everybody knows that. Uh, Liverpool did beat Tottenham in the in the Champions League final only because of cheating. That's clear. Um, and now that Liverpool's in the in the descendancy, and Spurs are in the ascendancy, I'm getting a lot of shit from you about the transfer window and this and that. I need you to pipe down over there and just take your medicine. Seven two, bruh. Come on, Villa ran you out of the park last week. That's, don't fine. That's fine. I'm okay with it. No, I'm. I'm gonna keep giving you shit about it because when I first started supporting, I Roy Hodgson was the manager. I've been through hell, so things are good. I'm gonna let everybody know about it. That is true. You did. Well, if, you, if anybody who does a stint with Uncle Roy, I guess. You you can you can do it, and I will add. Um, I guess this is a good way to good way to close out because I'll give you a little insight to to Jerry and me uh, on on the Twitter DMs. He hits me up just out of the blue, you know, no like non sequitur. Just fill this out. What team will will you pick? And it's uh, the Bundesliga. So, so there's a first division in Germany. Some people follow Bayern. I have a friend who follows Munchen Gladbach because his mom's from there. But it's always cool to pick a team in another league and sort of follow them. Uh, a lot of us do that, that follow European football. And so a lot of these websites will put out like little surveys about what team you should support in which country based on your stuff you like, you know, your, you know, you travel, food you like, what kind of person you are, whatever. But it's all like a personality test. It doesn't look like it's going to answer any questions. It's like, what kind of city do you want to live in? You know, what kind of like, you know, uh, movies do you like? All this, you know, just like a personality test. And then after 15 questions or whatever, it comes out uh, Augsburg, which is like a, it's like an old, real old city in Bavaria near Munich. <clears throat> and I was like, I've been to Bavaria a few times. So I was like, oh, cool. It's a Bavarian team, Augsburg. So the next day I said, I got Augsburg. And he got Augsburg too. So now we're, uh, we're fans of the, uh, I don't even know what they are. They're just Augsburg. Do they yeah. have a nickname or anything? No, there's no nickname. There's no mascot. No, none of that BS. There's just a team in a small town. They're like in the top three. They beat Dortmund. They've had a good run here. We've been since we've been following them. We might be good luck for them. Yeah. Oh, before we go, rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. This week sucked. Yeah, uh, I I'm on record. The first um, the first I call it an album, but it was a cassette, a cassette tape. Um, was Van Halen 1984. It's the first music I bought with my own money. Um, and I noticed when I played 1984 yesterday, uh, after I heard Eddie Van Halen died, I turned it over and, and the back of the, the LP actually said, also available in cassette. And I'm like, I wonder where that cassette is that I had all those years ago. But uh, yeah, this whole 2020 has not been great. Everybody who's died has been good. We haven't had one good death to celebrate, we're we're on the cusp. As the guy said from uh, the New York firm that bought Quaker Village Apartments, we're on the cusp of possibly a, a, a death we can celebrate. 
I don't want to go too much further and get you guys in too much trouble, but I think we all know what we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, if that happens, we'll get every, we'll get the gang back together and we'll have a nice uh, we'll have a nice glass of champagne. But so far, it's just been all fucking horrible. Tenants getting kicked out and people dying, which is not fun. It's not fun. And watching the football in front of empty stadiums. That's not fun either. Very boring. Can you get into that? I feel like those two things are really different in terms of scale of well, not Oh, I know. I Believe me. I'm trying to lighten up the mood because otherwise I can go right down to a hole. I mean, believe me. I'm trying to talk about something light. Something, you know. Jerry doesn't want to get dark. Oh, I do have a, a work story. I, I did shoot the Eagles' first home game. And that was the weirdest thing with no fans. Yeah. Their stadium was just empty. There's the, the cool thing was you could hear all the shit talking between the two teams. Like the guys on the sideline just like heckling every time, you know, a mistake was made. So that was cool. But yeah, like a, a stadium with zero fans, it's it's bizarre. It's, it just feels weird. Yeah, and it's weird. I guess it's weird to watch it too because they pump in this, this, the, the sound. Now, I... I when when teams have gotten sort of suspensions or other sort of like slaps on the wrist and they've had to play a game, you know, behind closed doors, they just play it and and as you said, you can hear everything. You can hear you can hear the ball, the leather of the ball as it moves around and people yelling at each other. But now when they pump in the sound to an empty stadium, when you're watching it, it seems weird. When you're there, it's probably bizarre. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I will, we're we're getting the second wave that we were promised. I think um, so. I guess we'll just have to deal with whatever's whatever's happening. As Jeannie said, um, you know, this this priority is is pretty far down the list of priorities for me right now. Uh, but it would be nice to watch a proper football match in the middle of this fucking shit. Agreed. Well, are we ever going to talk about pandemic cooking? Yes. Well, I actually, to be honest, I I wanted to talk. I wanted to get a panel together. It was you. I think um, Kirsten Walther, who does like vegan and baking, uh, and Medina, who does a lot of uh, does a lot of cooking, and I I think it's all like halal cooking, and it would be cool to get everybody together because I wanted to talk about my personal thing, which was the pasta grannies. Did I send you a thing about the pasta grannies? I, I love I them. love pasta grannies. They're the best. Susan Nurse Susan says I'm a pasta granny, which I think is fucking dope. I want to be one. Um. Yeah, we got to do a panel. That one might be one of our fun panel discussions. Carl and I were talking about um, starting to ramp up a little bit, and maybe drop some more like midweek episodes in the middle. And we did a panel after the um, it was a political one, but it was after the primary with Paul Blessed and you know just some random people across the political spectrum. And it was really cool, actually. It worked out cool. So that's a great idea. I got to get on that. It'd probably be after the general. You know, we, this would be a perfect. This would be a perfect like Thanksgiving week thing. Are you? Around? I mean, you're, you're no. No one's can go anywhere, so everybody's going to be around. What do you think? We'll do a food one, like say in a month. Yeah, I'll talk about food anytime. <laughs> That's true. I, I'm sort of the same way. Susan can't believe that. Like, I plan one. I, I we're eating, and I'm like. So tomorrow, I think I'm going to go to Sansone's. I'm going to get some clams. She's like, we haven't even finished eating dinner today. I'm like, you got to you got to plan this, uh, what you're doing, to get it right. You got to think about what you're doing. You can't just throw it all together at the end. 
Have any of your uh, have any of your go to spots uh, closed or anything? Have you had any trouble with the pandemic and everything? Any of the places you go and get out? Delacour, that place was good. I know. Well, we had. Uh, yeah, I'm bummed about that one. Yeah, me too. We had our our friend Alex, uh, fellow Liverpool uh, supporter and uh, somebody who lived in uh, in Lancashire. Um, yeah, we had him on right about the time they were they were going under. That was a, that was a bummer too, since we knew him. Southeast yeah, every, Kitchen every Friday, still going strong. Yeah, he's the best. I love him. The guy's the greatest dude. Have you been to the new place where Delacour was? I haven't been there. I haven't. Uh, like, is it? I guess it's it's Chiro. Is that what it is? Yeah, I went in it's and kind of like Is it? Well, my thing is, I don't know what they're going to do when it gets cold and you can't have, be outside. You know, I know the guy's good. Do you know the story of the chef there? That would be actually a great story to do. I'm not going to say you can't steal this now because you'll scoop me on it. But that guy was the chef at Moro. The It was on Scott Street, right, at, like in Trolley, on the other side of Trolley, like sort of closer to like Kitchen Leans, up the street from Kitchen Leans. And he, he got a James Beard Award, or he got a nomination, excuse me, when that place opened. But he got total burnout. Like after five years or however many years it was there, he like – just closed the restaurant, disappeared for like a year. He came back and he was a bartender at the, you know, the cigar uh, cigarettes place and uh, cigar shop and, and club in Trolley. They built off the back of that a bar about, I don't know, three or four years ago. Very small. He was the bartender in there. Same dude. And then that's when he moved uh, behind Veritas at the riverfront and had the lunch place there. Um, with the same guy he opened the Chiro from. So he kind of got back into it, like, there, and now he's, like, full full bore back into, like, fine dining again almost. It's just an interesting story. I, I don't really even know the guy personally. I know him to, like, wave to him. But, like, anybody who was at, like, the top of their game, James Beard, and then had, like, total burnout is somebody who I feel, like, I feel that somehow. In my, <laughs> I, f- I feel that. So I, I was always like, I gotta get, I got to try to get in touch with that guy. But that's the guy who owns that place. Um, him and the guy who owns the wine shop that they, you know, when they were down at the riverfront. Same two, same two fellas. Don't steal that story. Take I it. met those two guys. They were nice. Yeah, they're nice guys. Well, I'm gonna go make my make some food myself. I did. Uh, I baked bread today. How about that? Did you use yeast, or you've been growing a starter? I ha- You know, I fucked with that starter during the. Uh, during the beginning of the uh, lockdown, and I fucked with it for about I don't know three months or so. I wasn't into it. It was just too much. It was too much work. So yeah, now I just yeast it up. Same with my just dry active yeast. Same with my pizza crust. This is turning into the food. I like how uh, Jeannie turned this into the food episode. Nice. All right, let's wrap up. We're in an hour. Uh, Jeannie, Jerry. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, thanks for covering all of these uh, housing stories and and thanks for staying up uh, up Przicki and Rago's ass. Um, somebody needs to, so I much I very much appreciate that. I can tell you that uh, Carl and I always appreciate a good a good pounding of of Przicki, So uh, feel free to keep at it. It's our job. Hooray! Thanks for having. Me. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, big big ups to uh, 
to our man at uh, Two Stones, Greg. Thank you for bringing over to Delco Lager. You know, Two Stones, whatever they don't uh, drink, they can. They're great. Thanks again. And we'll be talking to you soon, folks. Left is best. <laughs>